Hello, welcome, and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Mala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer you. Um, also, follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, Vimeo, and I believe 22 radio uh, stations around the country. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, uh, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and ZDNet, uh, sought-after keynote speaker, and one of the most influential business and thought leadership experts on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Mala Afshar. He's the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, but he's one of the top followers on Twitter for CIOs, CMOs, and more, of course, the business community. So, and also a TV celebrity and author himself, which he doesn't talk much about. But anyway, we're not here to talk about us. We're here to talk about really cool people doing really cool stuff. Who do we have today to kick it off? It's our privilege to have our first guest, Bill Shanninger, Senior Partner at McKinsey and a global leader of their organization practice. Uh, Bill focuses on driving large-scale organizational and cultural change for clients across North America, Europe, and Middle East. An expert on role of culture, values, talent, and leadership in improving business outcomes, Bill helps executives enhance management effectiveness. Bill has published extensively in practitioner and academic journals on organizational topics, and he's also a sought-after speaker. He's also author of Beyond Performance 2.0, A Proven Approach to Leading Large-Scale Change, which is going to be the main topic of our conversation today. Welcome, Bill, to the Shrub TV. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure. Hey, welcome. We just found an awesome connection on the pre-show of uh, Allentown. This is hilarious. And so we'll get back to that at some point. But hey, I wanted to start by talking about change management, right? There's so many approaches out there. Everybody's like, oh, here's some advice. Here's what you want to do. Every leader's got a framework, right? And you guys put this stuff out long time back, right? You had some frameworks way before, um, and now you've basically updated that framework to really think about this in a very different way. So talk about what's changed since that first edition of Beyond Performance and those five frames of performance and health and how we've evolved to where we are today based on your practitioner experience. Well, great question, right? And certainly when you see a second edition, you'd be smart to ask, well, why did you need one? Right? I mean, you know, most, you know, when Wiley reached out and said, hey, is it time to do a second edition? The normal burden for a second edition is no more than like 20% new content. Right? It's actually pretty low. Um, this is about 70% new. So the yeah, you rewrote this whole thing. I mean, yeah, I read the old basically. one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so look, here's what happened. We, um, and if you indulge me, just to roll back the clock before the first one. So I joined McKinsey in August of 2000, and it was intended to be two years of collecting stories. It was in London, and then I wanted to hightail it back to academics, right? You know, I was finishing my PhD at Auburn, and I discovered a world of thinking big thoughts, not working very hard, and excellent football and barbecue. And that was a good gig. <laughs> Right? That was a really good gig. I was like, boy, do I want to get back to that. But I even had, an, I had, a, I had a teaching offer at St. Joe's, which was going to bring me back to Pennsylvania. Right? And then, like, maybe the football wasn't going to be great, but it, the rest was there. So McKinsey was really supposed to be two years. And, um, well, then we had a couple things that were really interesting to happen. We had four months of the, the, the last days of the dot-com boom. And then the bottom fell out, right? If you think about like in oh the UK, God, yes. losing like 98, 99% of its value in six weeks, up here in the Lehigh Valley, Lucent going away, right? I mean, there were so many companies that had been called excellent that just stopped, right? So we found ourselves licking our wounds a little bit, you know, at McKinsey, because we'd highlighted some companies in two of our more recent books then, uh, War for Talent and Creative Destruction, and they kind of went away. Yes. So we said, hey, what were we missing here? Because it wasn't just us. It was Forbes. It was FT. It was Wall Street Journal. Anywhere you were looking, we were ballyhooing these companies. And before you knew it, they were gone. Now, you could argue that anyone paying close attention would have seen one glaring thing going on, which was basic math. All of us will know that a positive times a positive is a positive, And a positive times a negative is a negative. But in that era, you had companies with negative cash flow times a positive multiple yielding to a positive valuation. It was so strange, they needed to create a letter 
to have some sort of intrinsic value to make up for the fact that there was no reason to believe this thing had value. So, I mean, that encapsulated that error, right? Okay, so I digress. So we said, well, what were we getting wrong? Did we miss something? We roll back to our colleague's book in the early 80s, In Search of Excellence. Oh, and it looked at Jim Collins and Jerry Porras's book when Collins was still writing with Porras. And just because the math works out, let's say there was like 51 companies when we combined the list together. And we took it forward to 2001 and said, well, what happened? A third of them were doing great, a third of them were gone, and a third were struggling. And when we looked at the basic difference, the ones that went away got caught up in the quarterly results trap, and they were doing anything they had to to deliver results, right? Stuffing channel, not recapitalizing, not paying the workers it's supposed to, cutting people, all the kind of stuff you go, in hindsight, you go, oh, that's kind of stupid. But they were chasing the result. The ones that did great, they said, look, we, we like performance too, but we're not willing to sacrifice the place in pursuit of it. So how we get the performance mattered, what we would later label performance and health. Right, so that took us like six months. It was super well researched. I mean, I was fresh out of a PhD program, so I irritated my colleagues like by being super rigorous. Right, it's like we probably didn't need that much rigor, but we had it anyway. So and they said, "Hey, this performance and health thing is interesting. Could we measure it?" And so that's when we launched. We wrote, colleague and I, Matt Guthridge, we wrote the organizational health index to start putting numbers to things like direction and accountability and motivation and innovation. So basically, bringing the same kind of numeracy or you know, or quantitative rigor to what had been called the soft stuff. So we started that in 2002, we're still running it today, got like you know, 6 million plus people have taken it, around 3,000 companies. So we really feel like we have a, a database of insight into what really drives long-term performance. So here's what was interesting. We launched the book, we start talking to companies about the idea for management performance and health, and almost to a person, the clients go, yeah, no kidding, that's important. <laughs> right? They're like, yeah, we get it. But this changing how you run the place part, the improving health stuff, that's really hard. So super hard. I'm on thinking about that. And that literally was one part of the impetus for writing the book. The second part was from 2002 onward, we've been tracking these change programs. You know how that 30% number keeps coming out, right? And like, who's going to say to people, we'd like you to show up. We'd like you to spend your time and your energy and your social capital and the likelihood is you're going to suck and it's not going to work. <laughs> I mean, who signs up for that, right? What a winning proposition right there. <laughs> right? Hey, let's go run our face into a brick wall. So like you were saying, there's no shortage of books. It's been amazing how many books there are and we still continue to struggle. So about a year and a half ago, we got the results of our most recent quarterly survey where we said, hey, what are you doing on change management? And are you actually following our prescription? And is it working? And I promise you, this is not marketing spin. It's not who we are. It's not cookbooks. It's just, it's stared us straight in the face. When people follow the prescription in the book, the success rate, simple question, did you get out of it what you thought you were going to get out of it? 79%. Yeah. So better than flip the odds, yeah. right? I mean, literally, when I do these book signings, I go hashtag flip the odds. And the whole point is, you know what? There is a better way. We don't have to guess, but boy, it's not easy. You don't get to say only, we can only do two or three things at once. That is all nonsense. Right? So it is just run the place better and you make more money. That means you have to change how you run the place. And yes, it's a little harder and requires more discipline and requires humility, but you can do it. And so that was the point behind this book. It was also the point behind so much of the rewrite because we had to bring all that out and up into it. That's amazing. So your success goes from 30% to 79%. Yeah. They follow your evidence-based time-tested formula. So maybe in one or two, maybe three uh, advice to company uh, founders and executives who are watching the show. How do you flip the odds? What, what, what are one, two, three things you can, you can, you can share with us? Um, yeah. given we only have 20 minutes and we could be talking to you for hours. Yeah, I got you. I'll keep this, I'll keep this part short because I know the context was a little longer than I intended, but I think it's an interesting backdrop Absolutely. around that. Oh no, it was amazing. It was awesome. Amazing. I mean, I think people really need to know how we got from here to there. Uh, and, and a lot of us have read your book in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, we, 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 here's what I think is, is it, we're, we're really finding out for the role of the leader. Leaders are necessary, but not sufficient in pulling these things off. Right. No doubt. And, you know, we've learned that influencers probably matter more even now than leaders do. The social network matters more. So that means you should assume that your cascade's not going to work and that you actually do yeah. need to use the influencers. Right? We know that. But let me. So leaders necessary. But here's the thing about leaders that 
kill you out of the gate if you don't get it right. The leader needs to show up with enough humility to say, we're not good enough as we are today. We, the people who run the place, we got us where we are and it's not good enough. And then you need the courage to do something different, which often means putting incumbency at risk, Absolutely. right? That one right there actually really triggers so much fear for a lot of leaders that they can't get over it, right? It's their fingers are out going, they need to change, they need to do this, or we need to do that. Okay, so they is the worst one to use. We <laughs> is okay. What you really need to hear is I. I for me. I need to be different, right? So that's one. It, that part does start with a leader, but it doesn't mean put, send out the perfectly coiffed and sanitized and vanillaized email because that's useless. No one reads it anyway. You do need the influence. Point two, this idea of managing for performance and health can be turned into plain language. Make sure everyone understands how we are going to make money and every individual gets how what I'm doing contributes to making money. Make sure everyone gets clear on the simple recipe for how we're going to run the place. Structure, operating model, decision rights, reinforcements. And then every individual knows how do I have to behave? How do I have to think and behave to make this thing stick? If you can't granularize it so that every individual gets it, you're just talking at them. If you can take it down, you know, what the old IO psychologist would say was there's O for the organization, I for the individual. If you can't take this to the I level, it's not real. Companies don't change. People in companies change. A company doesn't have corpus. People do, right? So that's, that's that. The last one I would okay. say is... Bill, does this mean... Does this mean that you have to have alignment in terms of your core values and guiding principles, ultimately framing your, the, the behavior that you want to celebrate, the behaviors you want to eliminate, and essentially adding a, a framework around your culture and your collective behavior? Spot on. In fact, in today's environment, with all the, you know, all the, all the uh, pronouncements about purpose, it's become even more important. Like we would have been taught, you know, we were, we were obviously anchoring ourselves in the late 80s, early 90s. Back then you would have been taught mission, vision, values, right? In terms of, you know, why do we exist? What would great look like when we get there and what guides our decision-making? I would think today we're probably looking at purpose, aspiration, and behavior. Purpose is the, what's the reason for us to exist, right? The aspiration is a really attractive view of how we're gonna make money and how we're gonna run the place. And then behaviors in terms of how would we live that every day? It's iterative, of course, but the purpose thing is a big deal. It's not just multi-stakeholder. I think you're seeing, as, as now there are more millennials and younger in the workforce than boomers, the tide has shifted a bit towards an expectation that I'll be able to achieve some level of personal purpose at work. In fact, you could argue with less people getting married, less people participating in organized religion, less participating in, in civic organizations, you have a disproportionate opportunity for work to fulfill that. So yeah. yes, that, that, it's, it's a big deal. Great, great and you can insight. activate if you do that, right? Great insight. Sorry I interrupted you. You'll no. no, that's okay. And then look, I think, I think this idea that, you know, so we talked about uh, the leaders, right? We talked about influencers. You know, I do think there's a real opportunity here to stop treating transformation or change as something separate, hmm. right? When we treat it as an event, and you hire in, let's say someone like McKinsey or another advisory firm, it's an event that you're enduring. And the people in the place, particularly those not directly involved in the project, they're like, when does this end? And you have to land pretty quickly that the two questions, how we make money and how we run the place, they're linked up and no, this isn't something you're enduring. We are literally changing how we run the place and it's gonna be that way going forward. So you need to grow leaders who can both run the place and change the place and do it at the same time. That's the hard part, right? And we've grown a couple generational leaders who can't do that. So there's a real challenge there with incumbency, right? Whether you can accept that this dynamism is always gonna be there, it's not just something to endure. Yeah, and we've been seeing a lot of this really in different dynamic leadership models, right? In terms of like what people need to do. Uh, and there's a perception, like in some cases, some people feel like, you know, a style of leadership um, has to fluctuate and change based on the situation. And a lot of people don't understand the difference between responsive and responsible leadership uh, that actually balances that out. Uh, but there's a challenge here, though, right? How do you get a change vision great? 
right? It's very hard for people to identify and define that chain vision. And you spend a little, you spend actually a lot of time trying to explain that in the book as well and to help people yeah. get to that point. Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, one of the challenges is most leaders don't start with an aspiration, they start with a deficit. <laughs> they tell you what's wrong. I mean, think about think about the think about the rhetoric we use. What's the burning platform? Who's the dragon <laughs> slaying? Who's the enemy? I mean, you know, all it is it's it's literally triggering it's triggering your amygdala, which is supposed to be triggering fear, right? Okay, so let's just say now. Listen, from human surviving standpoint, that's great. Holy shit, that very large animal is about to come consume me, right? I've arrived at dinner to discover I'm dinner. Okay, yeah, got it. But that doesn't last. Because the minute the threat is removed, people are like, oh, okay, so we can go back to what we were doing, right? Whereas aspiration setting yeah. is something attractive. It's something worth going. I mean, we see this in medicine all the time, and I'm only digressing slightly. Think about the, the, the recidivism rate in heart patients. When you say to them, if you don't change your diet or you don't stop smoking, you're going to die. And you know what? A lot of them die. But when you say, think about what you really want to be able to do. I want to walk my daughter down the aisle. I want to see my son... When I see my son graduate from graduate school or whatever, that does help change behavior because it's anchored in me and something positive. You know, it's not it's not the equivalent of wrestlers losing weight, right? <laughs> Going like I could just endure this a little bit longer. <laughs> Bill, but, how, much that, how much of that is the late '80s Andy Grove only the healthy paranoia survive, and you need to maintain a little bit of sense of urgency so you're not right. you're not right. well, a ton of it, a ton of it. I mean, think about it, right? You, whether it was Welch. Yeah. Whether it was Grove, was that so much of that was? I mean, think about Adidas. Literally, Nike's early mantra was "Kill Adidas." <laughs> yeah, right. And it was. So you know, so that era. So I just turned fifty, right? And so yeah. that era of growing leaders, many of who are now in senior positions, we were raised on Gordon Gecko. Yeah. We were yeah. raised on our first meaningful decade of outsourcing and downsizing. First generation to see their parents not likely have lifetime employment. Right, right. right. So we've been raised with a fear mindset. First, we were afraid of the Russians. Then we were afraid of the Japanese. Now we're told to be afraid of the Chinese. Right. <laughs> I mean, so it's so much of this fear-based approach yeah. is ingrained in us. But it just doesn't last because it's not that we're aspiring to be something better. We're trying to avoid getting killed. Right. And that makes you always reactive. Right. right. Not not proactive and getting at it. So that's why in our mind, this idea of aspiration setting first is such. And we explicitly say, do not take the diagnostic first. <laughs> Stay where you want to go first. So when you when you walk into a company and you have the ultimate sponsor CEO saying, Bill McKenzie's revered, you're a best selling author. Come and help us. How quickly can you assess whether the company's ready for change? Is it a few hours, a day, uh, or even your pre-work lets you know before the meeting that, my goodness, the culture, talent, process, and technology isn't quite there for this company to transform? Yeah. Well, you can usually find out if the leadership group is there within a few minutes. Yeah, I, I suspect that. <laughs> right. um, uh, the broader company that. takes a little bit more. The yeah. broader company, because you know most companies are an amalgamation of cultures, not one culture. Yeah. You know, and so you have to get your arms around what's actually there. You find the pockets of success and the places where they're really going to be difficult. Yeah. But just by the way people talk about things, are they saying they too much? Mm. Are they, you know, are they, you know, are they talking, you know, you know, are they taking too much credit? Are they blaming, you know, like it's interesting when you meet commodity businesses, right? You know, people who, that, that if they blame everything on the swing of the commodity price, they've not actually internalized what they're doing, Absolutely. you know, things like that. So almost always, you know, the first 15 minutes of a meal, yeah. Oh, we're meeting, you figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you have a roadmap to that, that adjust in terms of how you introduce concepts, how you, yeah, the necessary workflow and, and well, whatever well, ingredients are necessary for, well, them, yeah. for you to help them pivot. Related to what Bala is saying, I mean, talk about your change leaders form, right? You guys do this, it's a two day yeah. workshop, if I remember. Um, yeah. Part of the executive programs you guys have that are part of the McKinsey Academy. So. Yeah, we, well, we love these things. I mean, I think we're at like 160 of them now or something. We'll yeah. bring together like 20 to 25 uh, clients with their McKinsey partner who serves them, bring them together. And we end up working them through the five frames, you know, the, the, the process in the book, you know, aspiration, assess, architect, uh, act, and advance. So we work through it. 
we know that many clients want to spend more on the health side than on the performance side, but we don't allow them to be decoupled. We insist that we do it together. And it ends up being, a, you know, a gift, I'd say, you know, of a day and a half of actually really thinking purposefully about what they have to do. And always a mix of organization, unit, and themselves, right? So, in fact, the, the last part of it really is almost a call to arms for them individually about what they need to do. But the essence of these things is it starts creating cohorts of clients who say, oh, hey, those people are doing what I'm doing. And we've actually had some really nice network effects of people being able to say, oh yeah, I tried that out. Well, let me call that person in another sector completely because they're doing it and let me learn from them. So that's been hugely impactful for us. It's also helped us sharpen our language. You know, I used to say performance and health quite a bit, right? But the reality was in 2002, you couldn't really say culture. No one wanted to hear culture, right? So we used organizational health. But over time, I've come to believe that even health hasn't necessarily helped us. I mean, the metaphor did initially, but that it's too confusing for some folks about what you mean. But when I say how we make money and how we run the place, everyone gets that, okay. you know? And so, so change leader forums have had a bunch of effects, including helping us distill to the essence of the ideas, right? And better be able to communicate. And I think the book reflects that. I think the accessibility of the language in this version compared to the first one is better. And I, look, I'd be remiss not to say my colleague, Scott Keller, the co-author, he has a spectacular way with words. He's very, very good. We both have our own style about writing and communicating. Um, the, the more technical the chapters I wrote, sure. in the sense because it was Matt and I wrote the OHI, right? So the things that have the quantity behind it. But Scott's capacity to really spin a nice story here is, uh, is exceptional. So I'm, I feel lucky to have written with him. And then on the road, we both have, an, I think, a reasonably engaging way of talking about this stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing. So, well, hey, so while we're looking at this, you know, I I do want to ask you like that one last question, which is really, um, you know, when we're talking about scale, right, this is a little bit different, right? So you're, this book really talked about large scale change, right? And in this era of going from digital transformation to post digital to, you know, first principles, um, we're seeing that shift, right? That people are out of capacity to actually get to that scale. So anything that you could help them understand how to get to scale without killing themselves and the organization. Yeah, yeah. So two of the things I said early are the unlock to this. One is when you're clear on how you're gonna make money, there's what you're gonna do for the core business, business as usual, mm-hmm. and then you can distill that down into roles. And you say to people, what are the four to five things, your jobs to be done that really deliver that value? The very next question is, now look at all the nonsense you're asked to do. And get rid of the non get rid of the non directly value contributing work. Now, while that's obvious from a logic standpoint, because it creates capacity, it is astonishing how many people love the list in their upper left drawer, even after that bears no resemblance to the strategy. Right? So some of this is you're allowed to treat the change. If someone says to you, Oh, that's a great idea, I'd love to help you, but I don't have the time or I don't have the resources. What they're really saying to you is, your list isn't my list and I'm not really gonna play ball. Mm. Right, so that's why sometimes you have to structurally rip that out and change the jobs to create capacity for right. the change going forward. That's, that's I love that. The, the jobs to be done principle, you, I've heard you know, uh, Clay Christensen at Harvard Business talk extensively about the importance of your to-do list, your to-don't list, uh, you know, st- the stop, start, continue. Stop doing the things that don't Absolutely want to right. Start doing things that are meaningful. Funny enough, there's some overlap between McKinsey rhetoric and Clay's rhetoric. It's convenient. <laughs> well, Ray and I have had the privilege of uh, being with uh, Professor Christensen a few times, and, uh, and fact, Tom Peters and John Hagel and, and a whole bunch yeah, of great folks like that. So we're, we're we're in the same league here. Yeah. We're here with Bill Shanninger, author, co-author of Beyond Performance 2.0, and senior partner at McKinsey and Company. You can follow him at Shanninger, but more importantly, a fellow Lehigh Valley resident. It makes us awesome, man. <laughs> so we're going to talk more about that at some point when we get together. Uh, but Bill, uh, this is terrific. awesome. Please you're get terrific. the book. Please come back. You're terrific. Yeah, it's great, guys. I really enjoy it. I love the format here. And I'll tell you, if, you know, for the when you think about this kind of work, I would only leave you with this idea. It just feels to me like, why would we accept anything that only works three out of 10 times? Right? Why would we keep asking people to burn capital on that? I mean, once you know that there's a better way, yeah. it's just not good enough to keep doing the old way of doing it, right? And people deserve better. You know, I mean, you could say it, but humankind deserves better to not knowingly go run into the brick wall. 
Absolutely. <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks a lot, Bill. Happy Friday and happy Disrupt TV show. Thanks for Thank being on. I'm going to have a Yako for you guys this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> That's it's awesome. absolutely true, Ray. Going from 30% to 79%, and it's evidence-based, it's time-tested. I mean, I don't understand why only in baseball hitting three out of ten, you know, you get a pat on the back. I can't think of anywhere hey, else. And and NVCs. NVCs. <laughs> so, yeah, I suppose. I suppose. You're right. I don't know why. It would be amazing. So. <laughs> but right. hey, who do we have here? It's always to have a return thought leader and expert uh, back on Disrupt TV. Doug Henschen is Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, focusing on data-driven decision-making. What a great segue from Bill to Doug in terms of data-driven decision-making. Uh, Doug's data decision research examines how organizations employ data analysis to reimagine their business models, not just modernization of existing legacy processes, and gain a deeper understanding of their customers. At the end of the day, digital transformation must begin and end with customer in mind. You can follow Doug on Twitter at D-H-E-N-S-C-H-E-N. Welcome back, Doug, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Nice to see you both. Nice to see you again, Ray. It's been, what, three hours or something since I've seen you? <laughs> <laughs> and another Lehigh Valley Connection. We can't figure this out. This is the Lehigh Valley Connection show. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, but this yes. is amazing. So, hey. I had a brief stint on WFUZ in uh, Allentown. A uh, little uh, uh, internship at a UHF TV station in Allentown, which... Ray and I have talked about in the past. Oh, awesome. Hey, you know, I, I, I did my scholastic scrimmage stint there too. <laughs> it's kind of fun. It's like quiz bowl on uh, every, every week. So, hey, look, we're in the middle of conference season. What are some of the trends you're encountering? I mean, this is like, you know, I mean, we're, we're smack in the middle of fall season. Uh, everyone sounds like they sound the same. I can't tell what's going on with these marketing messages. So what's different and what's going on here? Well, I think um, to, to some of Bill's point, uh, you know, changing the way you run a company is hard. Uh, I, thought, I thought Bill was great. And I think uh, tech vendors are, are getting savvy to uh, the fact that their technology alone is not enough. Um, so there's a little less hype, I think, a little bit more realism um, that if it's a tech vendor, you know, they can only provide some foundations for transformation, some foundations for AI, and that really there's more to it. Um, also hearing, um, if there is a hypey word this year, it's probably open. Uh, everybody's talking <laughs> open uh, because we, we're realizing that it's a hybrid and multi-cloud <laughs> world. So even, you know, Oracle has a bit of detente going with, with uh, Microsoft on Azure. Um, but, but really uh, telling, I think, is you, I keep seeing these in the data, in my space, the data space, I keep seeing these announcements of things that are really helping companies with fundamentals, like data catalogs, they keep popping up. Um, so an announcement at the, at the TIBCO event, at the Oracle event for, for enterprise data catalogs. And that's really telling. It's saying that companies are still struggling with this very basic thing of getting their arms around all their data and that it's getting harder, not easier as we go into the cloud and now have data spread all over the place. We've had you, uh, we've had the privilege of having you on our show for more than three years. You were one of the first, you know, data experts we had on, on the show. And so over, if you could just reflect on, you know, 2017, 18, and now 19, and the show I think was 2016, so maybe four years, for, 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 for calendar periods. When you think about data to decision and that decision led to an action with, which ultimately hopefully yielded positive outcome. So I'm gonna ex extend the spectrum from data to outcome. Have you seen real use cases where companies are better equipped to go from data to positive outcome in 2019 versus the first time you came on the show? Um, yeah, I've seen progress. I think this whole thing around uh, chief data officers, chief digital officers, chief analytics officers has been a healthy trend. You know, we've long had tech silos, data fiefdoms, um, and very fast moving technology kind of confusing and muddying the water. Um, but at least uh, some of these chief data uh, digital analytics officers 
are, are doing what needs to be done and that's setting some standards and establishing consistent processes. Um, I've done a number of uh, case studies over the years, you know, Facebook, Shell, Climate Corp, EJ Gallo, Pfizer, P&G, what they tend to do is come up with a, sort of a, a centralized and consistent platform for data and repeatable processes. And it's, it's not a top down, but there is this centralized core expertise that they want to make repeatable. And then they go through a process perhaps of kind of prioritizing what needs to happen across the organization. What are the high priority, uh, you know, you could call it transformation or you could call it AI or you could call it data-driven projects and initiatives that will really change customer experience, that will really change how we operate. And with this sort of centralized um, knowledge and platform in place, they can then sort of uh, work with those teams, maybe embed people from the centralized team or have the central centralized team work with these groups sequentially to yeah. kind of keep, um, you know, learn from the first projects and then make that a whole repeatable process. So that's, you know, it's, it's uneven. The, uh, you know, I did some of these case studies about organizations that did that five years ago. Uh, I'm still doing seeing it today where companies are kind of getting that they got to get their arms around their data if they're going to make use of it. Just a follow-up question because I, I'm hoping to validate what I'm seeing based on your experience and expertise. I find that companies that I work with that demonstrate maturity in terms of their ability to make informed decisions based on their data capture analysis and distribution uh, uh, processes and tools. The companies that are well poised to go from data to decision to action to outcome have created uh, or have a mindset where the relationship between the departments is viewed more as being more important than the department itself. So they are actually intensely focused on delivering insights to their to the other lines of business. They're not happy with just capturing data and analyzing and coming up with insights, but it's the flow of data throughout the organization and improving that improving the flow of, of information that's allowing them to, to really make uh, collectively better decisions to serve their stakeholders, employees, customers, partners. Do you see that companies that focus on flow of information are the ones that are typically really getting the most they can from, from capturing data and analyzing and so on and so forth? Well, I think what I described was what the data team does, but you're absolutely right. It has to be plugged in to a kind of a holistic uh, enterprise uh, approach. Um, you know, it's, it's, so you need the platform for data, you need the processes for data, but you also need uh, agile IT, you need uh, agile app development, and you need this uh, collaborative process. Uh, some call it from the, again, from the data angle, sort of an analytic ops or sort of a DevOps style approach where you're plugged in with the business, you're plugged in with the application developers, you know, you're plugged in with the data scientists to have this collaborative process of, you know, uh, imagining these new data-driven scenarios, yeah. coming up with the, harnessing the data, coming up with the models, getting those into production. These are all silos that uh, that com companies have some had have had silos and they've realized that they have to synchronize all this stuff and get all these teams working together to make it a well-oiled machine yeah excellent thank you no and hey one of the interesting things you're talking about doug is right as, as you build this out um and you understand that data decisions pipeline uh you also are setting yourself up for ai and digital feedback loops that actually occur from there and so what are some of the things that people need to do and organizations need to do to be prepared for um, this growing and burgeoning world of applying artificial intelligence to some of these decisions? Well, again, it's, it's not only having the, the process and platform for data, it's getting these constituents together, uh, the, the business to understand what are the data-driven business models and outcomes they're trying to affect the data engineers, data scientists to come up with that, to use that uh, process and, and approach to, to harnessing the data, 
and doing it quickly, not taking forever, not uh, stopping with experimentation, but really having a connected process to uh, the, the application developers and the operational people that put those models into production and then closing that loop, having a process whereby the data, the learned uh, activities, the learnings from the outcomes come back and uh, up update those AI models. That's, that's really the process. And that requires, uh, to, to what Bill was talking about, uh, changing the way you run the place, some change management, some relearning the ways uh, you, you are doing things, some reskilling uh, in many cases. Uh, and that's, that's really, I think, what uh, companies that are addressing this holistically are, are managing slowly to do. I like your so, speed and continuity yeah. and, and personalization at scale. I think those are important, important characteristics. Um, I, I, I've always thought, and we've had guests on the show talk about AI, and often I hear that we wish it wasn't artificial. The A should be augmented intelligence because ultimately you're you know, removing blind spots and, and extending your, the contextual intelligence that you have regarding a process, a behavior, and so on and so forth. And I saw a market overview report where you talked about augmented analytics. I thought, oh, so, so what is augmented analytics? And uh, talk to us uh, not only about the def definition, but why, you know, the importance of it. Well, uh, right. So uh, as the name suggests, this is about BI and analytics vendors, uh, the market overview covered kind of a who's who, uh, 13 top vendors. And augmented analytics is really about using heuristics, machine learning, a graph-based understanding of how users are in interacting with the BI system, uh, natural language interfaces and interaction, um, automation, and really the BI and analytics, analytics vendors tend to talk about it as assisting humans. Mm. Um, but I think it's also gonna be important to take advantage of automation. Um, frankly, it's kind of uh, 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 tough for behind analytics vendors who license per user per month to kind of change their thinking and, and um, you know, suggest that this automation is gonna replace humans. So I think we have to have the vendors, I'm encouraging them to, to get more creative with their licensing because if you can automate and take advantage of, of insight, uh, if you have confidence that X decision is the right one to take, and you can do that without human intervention, why wouldn't you do that? I mean, I go to robotic process automation uh, events, and they're absolutely talking about how much manpower they're saving with automation. And I, I think uh, companies want to economize and take advantage of automation wherever possible. So I think the augmented analytics uh, conversation is going to change. And which line of business is right for this uh, adoption of automation? Is it the service organization? Is it sales marketing? Or do you see equal need and opportunity across all lines of business in the next, you know, in near term, next two to three well, years? We're already seeing the service bots. We're already service. seeing the Q&A bots. Um, I, I think... Um, so any deterministic process where you can you know, um, create a level of consistency based on, again, simplicity of workflow and, and deterministic process. Well, that's coming in with these uh, BI and Alex vendors haven't had low code, no code and workflow really. They've had their dashboards and their reports, mm. but I'm seeing more pairing of, of these new low code, no code and, and flow capabilities to kind of build uh, bots and interactions informed by analytics. And I think that's an important uh, trend that we're moving and it, in. And, and it has to deliver value in, I'll say near real time, but probably real time. And it has to, uh, again, be accurate. So it's surgical near real time serviceability that would be uh, a substitute for a person. Uh, you know, as someone who ran call centers for 10 years, you know, you know, there's a certain level of real-time analysis, both hard skills, soft skills, before you can be confident that the entity, human or machine, can deliver proper service to an end user while maintaining your brand promise. Right. You want you want these uh, inter these. Uh, you're getting into an area. Um, this is my subject of my next research report on embedded analytics, mm -hmm. and to date, 
that embedded idea has been associated with OEM. Okay, uh, I'm going to work with analytics vendor X to put dashboards and reports within my SaaS application. And that's not what I think of when I think of, uh, of evolved embedded analytics. We want analytics in the context of decision making. Yes. We don't want people's swivel chair between reports and dashboards and their work. We want it right there in the context of the work. And again, back to my point about automation. And if we have a confidence level and we, we know we've tried it and we've determined that yes. confidence, confidence level X, we can just go right ahead and automate it and trigger things. Um, we want to do that. And that's what, you know, bots are generally following that pattern of, you know, we, we start at the top with the most frequently asked questions and we gradually curate and curate and curate those uh, responses uh, and, and get down to the, you know, the top 80% of questions or the top 20% of questions that take up 80% of the time. And then, you know, the exceptions from there are handed off to the human. So that's, that's yeah, really actually what's trend. interesting. So have you been seeing like, okay, as we were looking at the data side of it, the uh, embedded analytics that you're talking about, we kind of touched on the edge of uh, processes, right? And experiences are built on this level of journey orchestration that's happening there. Um, are you seeing the analytics start to kick in against those processes? Because some companies are actually in the, in the middle of actually decomposing the processes so they can invoke them as headless microservices. And if we can track those headless microservices by context, um, we actually might have a whole new category of these analytics that can power next best action. Is that, is that a trend that you're seeing yet right now? Or are we still envisioning that? That's a pioneer leader thing. And that's where I see embedded going. Look instead of having this generic horizontal uh, BI and analytics platform, uh, if it's exposed through microservices and granular services, uh, if you have low code, no code capabilities, you can build curated uh, experiences with analytic insight built in, with automation built in. I was just at the TIPCO event. Um, uh, they have a, a, a customer for Spotfire Schlumberger, uh, big, you know, oil services company, a lot of well, giant oil and gas companies, they've created applications with, uh, you know, so it's sort of a data-driven value-added service for them, but uh, uh, analytic interfaces of all sorts for oil companies to better understand how their operations are going. And so it's, it's really curated for a specific uh, business environments for specific workflows. Uh, it's, it's really where I think uh, pioneers uh, and even fast followers are doing this. They're building their own analytically driven interactions and, and processes. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a broadly a trend at all. It's, it's, it's very early days for that sort of thing. But you're, you're seeing uh, some very mainstream vendors add the low code, no code capabilities add um, you know the ability to to embed the analytics within applications so i think the leading organizations are increasingly going to be crafting their own experiences whether for the customer or for their internal employees so ray awesome. really ray really touched at the heart of it if you understand the journey um, then you understand the moment of truth where you can leverage uh, augmented analytics to insert perhaps you said next best action, but a recommendation in real time for you to do something to improve the state. So if you had, and you, you used Pioneer, so if you had a pie chart that said augmented intelligence or analytics used for descriptive, diagnostic, predictive, and ultimately prescriptive use of augmented analytics, what percentage in that pie chart reflects today's capability where businesses are offering to their sales, services, marketing, field service, IT, DevOps, real-time recommendations. So it's not like this is the lottery ticket, winning lottery ticket number. It's go buy this number so you can actually win. It's prescribing action for people to do things in real time. What percentage of the pie chart are pioneers? 1%, 5%? Uh, I, I would be amazed if it's more than 5%. I mean, yeah. typically Constellation talks about pioneers, type A companies being 5%, fast followers being maybe 10 to 15%, uh, you know, and then 
the the the, the laggards uh, and and so on. So it's really the tip of the spear right now. I'm not seeing a lot of these case studies where they've come up with these nicely curated, very uh, customer and and context specific. Uh, interactions with embedded and or augmented, those are two different things, by the way. Um, you can have pretty straight up, um, you know, analytics, KPIs, little micro charts within the context to support a decision. Augmented, it's really early days. Uh, we're early. starting to see yeah. some of these bolted into uh, products as they are today, but particularly things like uh, intent-driven understanding you know, how are users interacting and what should I recommend to that user based on their interaction with the BI and analytics platform, their interaction with specific content, their interaction with others, what their role is, what department they're in. Very early days for this sort of uh, graph-based understanding of what users are interacting with. And, and therefore, if, if that's early days for a general plat generalized horizontal platform, even more finite group are, are, are leveraging that within a customized uh, uh, curated application of some sort. I, I, I just, I, I spoke to a tire manufacturer that, uh, that, that took 20,000 defective, 20,000 pictures of defective tires and fed it into a model because uh, they were unable to reimburse their clients within a week of, of, of a defective tire. Now the right the clients take a picture of the, the, the defective tire and within seconds, the classifier can say whether this is reimbursable defect. So they've reduced a week to literally second minutes next day to right. have a refund. Is that an example of using machine learning um, and, and, and really being able to use augmented analytics to reduce a process from weeks to seconds and being able to tell the insurance agent you are empowered to to refund this, you know, this client right now in the moment, is would that um, be pioneer work or is that is that? Oh, that's totally pioneering work. Uh, it reminds me of another uh, uh, kind of uh, auto uh, wrecking operation uh, that has like 16 pictures of a of a car taken uh, after a crash, and they're using in this case, I wouldn't call it augmented analytics. This is a customized AI app. This is machine okay. vision. And they're uh, quickly determining, should that is that a total loss that should be hauled off to a, a wrecking yard? Is yeah. this should this be sent to a repair shop? Yeah. Um, what is the reimbursement? It's putting these uh, vehicles in in the right bucket and triggering the process for the insurance claim and what happens for the customer. You know where the car goes, who's who's towing it, doing all this stuff. It, it's that's a custom crafted. Uh, you know, application with, with machine vision. Um, augmented analytics, the, the market overview that I did, this is really uh, within the context of BI and analytics applications. Yeah. I, yeah. You could apply the word, okay, it's augmenting the human, but the case you talked about, the case I saw with uh, yeah. uh, kind of auto wrecking company. Custom use of AI. Yeah, I think it's their AI it's driven like process. It's, it's not unlike, uh, you know, manufacturing shop floors that are doing defect detection on the on the product on the production line with machine vision, or or Domino's Pizza having you take a picture <laughs> selfie and actually feed it into their Domino's ML like vision thing. I mean, that's yeah. hilarious, right? I mean, Ray, you, I, and I, I, are, you and Ray are hosting uh, in first week of November hundreds of incredible thought leaders at your Constellation Connect Enterprise conference. And I'm sure many of the BT150, you know, these are like the super brains, big brains, 150 business leaders and practitioners who are going to attend and talk about their use of analytics and their use of BI to improve the health of their business. Lots of pioneers are going to be there. Can you talk about, first of all, what's the theme of CCE this year? And what do you expect, what, 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 do, you, what do you hope your audience will take away from spending, you know, three days with some of the best and brightest technologists and business leaders in the world. You mentioned the BT-150, that's a great group. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't also mention the Supernova Awards uh, finalists. Right. Um, I, can't, I can't tell you the exact count, but we're, we're gonna have a lot of them there. I've already lined up quite a few on panels on, on uh, sort of intelligent enterprise, mm -hmm. BI and analytics loosely. 
and uh, artificial intelligence. So uh, some repeat visitors like uh, Royal Dutch Shell and uh, GE oh. and um, you know various finalists that are very impressive. Uh, uh, I think Ray well, can tell you more company. about the big picture themes. That's awesome. Oh, yeah, no, actually, you know, one of the big things that we're moving to is we're moving away from the conversation around digital transformation. In 2010, we built the company talking about digital transformation. It's not necessarily mainstream, but it's definitely on the top of every board's mind at the moment, right? And so what we're trying to do is move away from this, what we see a, a bigger post-digital divide to where these exponential business models are being created uh, through what we call data-driven networks. And this data-driven piece, the, the part that Doug's talking about from data to decisions, that's the foundation for a lot of these digital activities. The question is what kind of business models are going to be built against that and what type of monetization models will occur. Uh, and, and, and that's what makes this exciting about the conference because when you asked about the BT150 and Doug mentioned about the Supernova Awards, uh, what we have at this point is, you know, we, we were scrounging in 2010 to find like, you know, some people that were actually doing any digital transformation. This year, we got something like almost 100, like really well-qualified applications for Supernova Awards, right? And, and even then we had a tough time this year, tougher than before, trying to figure out, you know, how, how do we find the finalists? And so what we have is a situation on November 6th where we're gonna reveal like Oscar style, the winners right uh, of these different awards in like eight to ten categories and that's what's really exciting about what's going on at this event along with the fact that you know people are now so engaged in the digital transformation how are we going to get there right, right, right. And, and what have we learned and what have we realized is, is a bad idea and that, that's the knowledge sharing among this uh, cohorts of, of early adopters that have been with us for the last 10 years so ray doug i mean when when you and I, and I and I literally agree with you that that digital transformation is not table stakes, it's 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 been a board level discussion and topic. Uh, CEOs are being rewarded by how they transform not just their legacy business processes, but how do they bring incremental revenue through new business model innovation opportunities? What makes the 150 unique when digital transformation is now baseline expect, expectations from these leaders? That, that's a great question. And, and the BT150 is special because these are folks that have been pioneering doing digital transformation at different companies for quite some time. But the one difference between a BT150, uh, when, uh, someone named to the BT150, and they're going to be inducted on the fifth, those folks, they share, they teach, they mentor, right? Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things they do really well is they pass that on to the next group. Because you know, as Bill said earlier, I mean, this change is cultural and you have to be able to share that and pass that value on to the next group so that they can actually get to the scale, right? And, and, and that's one of the things that we've discovered about this group's BT150 versus what we've seen in the past where people just did a project, they showed up, you know, they did a wonderful job, they took the POC and did well, and, and then it just died. What we're actually seeing is people are taking those POCs and turning them into real businesses, right? And that, that's where the excitement starts coming. Awesome. I think that's why we introduced the BT150. It's, uh, it's leadership, it's culture change. The SNA awards are more project-based. But to Ray's point, I, I am seeing uh, repeats, you know, companies that are coming back that are nominated, that they're continuing to replicate their successes and do things like, you know, data decisions, innovation, uh, and make it replicable, not just uh, a one-time project that's one and done. Sure. Now, last year, Ray, when you were at Davos, and certainly we saw at this uh, at, at Constellation Connect Enterprise, there was a fairly strong emphasis on distributed ledger technology and the the importance, future importance, and maybe even near-term importance of blockchain. What trends do you anticipate will dominate the conversation at CCE 19? Because certainly CC18 and all the work and the discussions around what you saw firsthand at Davos indicated that blockchain and AI was top of mind for all. Do you see that changing at all this year? You know, I think the big change is really talking about things in terms of business models. Uh, we're going to have a session talking about inside exponential business models from post-digital divide to winner-takes-all networks. Right. Um, we're also going to be talking about the impact of 5G, not in the public sense, but what's going to happen in closed systems 
uh, especially in warehouses uh, of where they are. We're talking about mixed reality again and the experience of spatial computing and really what that's uh, doing to change uh, how we look at reality, how we visualize things, how we experience things at that layer. Uh, and then of course, I mean, you know, we've got a session, I mean, Doug's leading the session, you're on, on, on AI, real world AI projects. I mean, we've got, I mean, some huge uh, companies, Dow Jones, Halliburton, Sun, you know, Unibap and, and some others uh, that are popping into these AI coming. So it's a that's lot that's happening on the tech side. Yeah, and, that, and that's where it's getting beyond just applying the tech, but bringing all those constituents together, making it a repeatable process to get to AI wins and not just experimentation and one-time project. Given the fact and, that and this, given the fact that you had this incredibly hard work of of identifying 150 trailblazers in your BT150, putting aside the CEO, and there's going to be a number of CEOs at CCE. Who is the most influential line of business transformation leader in, in the enterprise today? Is it that CIO? Is it the CMO? Is it the CDO or chief revenue? Will we see CHROs climbing the influence ladder? Tell us, I mean, and I don't expect that you know the makeup of the personas of the 150 B folks on the BT150, but who is the most influential persona, Ray, other than the CEO? <laughs> Put you on the spot. <laughs> you know, I actually do have a good feel for, for most of the 150. And, and I would actually say that the most influential person is, is actually not in this list of BT150. Um, it's, it's, actually, um, it's, it's actually the board members. And, and when the board actually yeah. makes a decision to yeah. say, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't buy a lot of this groundswell or it's a ground up kind of initiative. Um, we're talking at board level type business model top change. Down. Top down. Right? And it's top down and, and they have to support these initiatives because what we're in the middle of is this fight on earnings per share. And people, back to Bill's other point, right? Our first guest, right? That short termism, that's killing every single company. Right. And if you're focused on that shirtism a quarter to quarter, you're making the wrong decisions. Right. Okay, and boards okay, that actually give Europe. people the time help. Okay. You're, you're, you're a board member. You help companies recruit board members. Now I'm a CEO of a company and I'm asking you, Ray, help me find a strong board member. What characteristics, what prior experience do you look for in order to help me recruit a strong board member? I'm looking for people that think in generations. People that going back to that vision point that Bill was talking you always about. People, thoughtful answers. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you know, but it, it's you got to think in generations. Like, oh, what is this company? Where are they going to be going forward, right? And and then and I think that's that's really the secret behind it. But but hey, you know, I mean, we we're, we're gonna you know, day one is really about the technologies, the transformation lessons learned that are out there. We've got some great stories from people that have been pioneering this. Day two is about industries and best practices. Uh, we are doing a Disrupt TV show uh, live on stage, I, I think there as well. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, we have our Supernova Awards on day two, um, and we, at, we have a gala dinner there. Um, we do the induction sharing for the BT150 on the first day. And then day three is about roles. That's yeah. where we're gonna learn about leadership. So Annie McKee from the University of Pennsylvania is going to be there sharing some of those lessons learned uh, and weaving together all those conversations around cool tech, processes, and then really about the individual. And that's kind of how we wrap that event together. I'm really uh, yeah. I still have not encountered any event like CCE. It's such a, a networking event. It's such a friendly event. Uh, there's nothing like it, and um, I just love going every year. And the food's great, so, you know. <laughs> we can't complain. It's the the all Half Moon Bay. <laughs> half Moon Bay, you know, a whole bunch of place. No, we hope to see you there. For those following on radio, this is uh, Half Moon Bay Ritz. It's November 4th through 7th. It's the Constellation Connected Enterprise. It's our ninth annual year, and it's really uh, a collection of early adopters, innovators that are looking at business transformation. So for those of you that are following on, you can see that on the Constellation website at www.constellationr.com. So, but hey, you know, we've got a lot coming up. What's going on next week? Yeah, next week is episode 166. We have John Del Santo, Senior Managing Director, Head of Accenture's U.S. West Region. And John's going to talk about their latest research from Accenture. Laura, Laura Dryan, Managing Director of Silicon Valley Data Capital. T150 winner, yes. Absolutely. And one of my, one of our favorite uh, repeat guests, Ron Miller, who's right now at uh, TechCrunch Disrupt in New York, Enterprise reporter at TechCrunch, who's going to come and give us a recap 
of this phenomenal event that's being held as we speak right now. So uh, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Doug, thank you for being an amazing guest. Uh, Ray, your closing remarks. Hey, nothing, nothing here. Just spend your time, figure out some time with your friends, your family, your kids. Uh, I think that's very valuable. Uh, it's going to be a very crazy Q4 from all we can tell. So it's, uh, have a great Friday, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Great Friday. Thanks. Thanks, Doug. Thanks. Thank you.